Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey gang, Brian Allen with EM Guidewire here once again to invite you to episode three of our Sepsis Awareness Month Deep Dive. Episode one helped us to understand the background and widespread nature of sepsis, and episode two helped us to choose our resuscitative fluids wisely and with purpose. This week, the team takes off on the topic of bug juice, those lovely antibiotics that help to treat what's ailing us. Thanks for joining us once again. Here we go. Welcome back to EM Guidewire. We're coming to you from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we are continuing to celebrate Sepsis Awareness Month with another podcast exploring the latest and greatest in sepsis management. Check out our other podcast this month where we explore everything from physiology to fluids. We even have an entire podcast dedicated to tiny humans coming up, so be sure to stay tuned. I'm definitely listening to that one. Septic nuggets scare the ketchup out of me. Today, we'll be focusing on antibiotics and sepsis, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by MRSA Swabs, keeping our internal medicine colleagues in those fashionable plastic gowns they seem to love so much. MRSA Swabs. Nothing adds to the excitement of rounding for six hours like pulling a blue gown on and off every other room. Do you think the lack of blue gowns in the ED means we're all swarming with MRSA? I mean, that, C. diff, Cree, ESBL, BRE... My work vest is basically a breeding ground for the next superbug that will eventually destroy mankind. <laughs> well, before we get started, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Jenny Potter, PGY3. I'm Nikki Richardson, PGY3. I'm Victoria Servin, PGY2. And on that note, let's start a discussion on antibiotics and sepsis. So I know we have this whole podcast prepared, but I think I can summarize antibiotics and sepsis in one sentence. Go big or go home. Broad spectrum antibiotics for everyone. That's a great way to contribute to that superbug you've been growing, Victoria. I like to be a little more sophisticated in my approach and find the source of the infection and then tailor my antibiotic choice based on the bacteria most likely to affect that organ system. You both make great points, but let's take a quick step back. The first step in starting antibiotics is establishing a need for antibiotics. Just because a patient shows up hypotensive, tachycardic, or altered doesn't automatically mean they need to be started on antibiotics. It's important to screen patients for other types of shock before flushing antibiotics through their veins. Refer to episode one of our sepsis podcast for some great advice on how to properly identify sepsis. Another important step before starting antibiotics is a quick chart biopsy. You want to know if your patient's been on antibiotics recently. If they have been, then you're going to want to avoid giving them that same antibiotic as whatever bacteria they're currently growing clearly isn't susceptible to that drug. Good point. I also go through the microbiology section of their chart to see if they have a history of positive cultures. If they do, I want to know what bacteria they grew and what their susceptibilities were. You also want to know what kind of environment your patient is coming from. A person coming from home is exposed to a different bug than those coming from a sniff or those that are bouncing back from a recent hospitalization. Charlotte is also home to an international airport, so it's not uncommon for us to get patients straight off the plane. Always remember to ask about foreign travel when you have a patient or family member capable of providing history. Y'all have made some really great points, but for now, let's pretend we have an elderly female, hypotensive, tachycardic, obtunded, who arrives from home. EMS reports that the family mentioned something about a recent stay in a rehab facility the next day over. 
This is their first time presenting to your facility, and family members do not accompany them to the hospital. What's your next step? Sounds like a typical front room patient. I would start with the fundamentals of resuscitation, IV, O2, monitor. Then a good physical exam. If after that, sepsis is still my number one diagnosis, I'd quickly move to obtaining cultures and starting broad-spectrum antibiotics. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign includes administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics in the one-hour bundle, and it has become a core measure used to judge how well hospitals are managing their septic patients. (sighs) I knew you were going to go there. The one-hour bundle. I'll give it to you in the patient population described above, an undifferentiated, super sick, obtunded patient in a front room who you have no medical history on. In that case, it's totally reasonable to expect broad-spectrum antibiotics to be started within one hour. But that's not how all of our patients are going to present. What about that patient who comes in through the waiting room or the one who is febrile and tachycardic but not in shock and just sitting in a dark corner of one of your back rooms? It's going to be a lot harder to identify, chart biopsy, and start antibiotics on those patients within an hour. Great point. We're pretty good at identifying patients that are super sick in shock and doing all of the things for them as soon as they hit our doors. But identifying those with just plain old sepsis takes a little bit more time and finesse. Are those excuses I'm hearing? (laughs) It's a core measure. You need to get it done. Patients get triage vitals pretty quick. If they come in febrile and tachycardic, they should be fast-tracked for a line and some antibiotics. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not all that is febrile and tachycardic is septic. Do you really want me ordering broad-spectrum antibiotics on the 24-year-old with one day of URI symptoms from triage before I've even seen them? Well, obviously, I didn't mean that patient. Just, you know, the septic ones. But when volume is skyrocketing and our wait times reach astronomical heights, there's no way we can get all the febrile tachycardic patients back to a room within one hour of triage vitals to identify those that meet criteria for sepsis and those who are suffering from a less serious illness. I feel like it is definitely worthwhile to distinguish these two patient populations rather than merely throwing antibiotics at people just because they meet the most minimum criteria from triage. This would be a disastrous mistake. Where did the one hour to antibiotics recommendation even come from? So glad you asked, Jenny. Although the one hour time to antibiotics receives a strong recommendation from the Surviving Sepsis Committee, it only has moderate evidence to back it up. And that evidence mostly comes from papers that have shown increased mortality from delaying antibiotics. But there have not been any studies to show that one hour is the magical number that leads to a significant change in outcomes. Furthermore, most of the studies which reported this trend were retrospective observational studies, not the gold standard randomized control trials. Kind of get what you're saying, but it just makes sense to start antibiotics early. If a person is sick from a bacterial infection, the sooner you start killing the bacteria, the sooner they'll get better. I see your point, but when it comes to sepsis, it's not just the bacteria that's making them sick. It's the dysregulation of the pro-inflammatory cascade that is producing a lot of their symptoms. Does starting antibiotics early necessarily have a large impact on this process? You're asking all the right questions, Jenny. The honest answer is, I can't say for sure. But we do have one randomized control study that did offer some insight. The FANTASY trial took patients who were picked up by EMS and screened positive for signs of sepsis, febrile, tachycardia, tachypnea, and separated them into two groups those who received pre-hospital ceftriaxone administered by EMS, and those who received the typical pre-hospital resuscitation with IV fluids and oxygen. Researchers then compared 28-day mortality between the two groups. Almost 2,700 patients were enrolled in this study, and there was no significant difference in mortality between the two groups. Again, we aren't going to get into the flaws of this study, and it by no means provides a final answer to the question, but it does provide pretty good evidence to support a short delay in antibiotic administration in favor of waiting until the patient can be properly evaluated by a physician. Strong work, Nikki. It looks like Victoria should put away her antibiotic-happy clicking finger, at least until she has a chance to evaluate the patient herself. Ugh, 
fine, but I'm going to keep an eye out for future studies on this topic. Let's get back to our original question, a broad spectrum for source control. Let's. For the patient we started with, I agree that starting a super sick patient with septic shock on broad spectrum antibiotics quickly is important and a reasonable thing to do. Let's remember that source control means more than identifying if the patient has a pneumonia or a UTI, which would both likely get better on the Vink and Cefepime I'm ordering off the bat, but it also means looking for an infected kidney stone, abscess, or pus-filled gallbladder that are unlikely to get better without a surgical intervention. Great point. Just because we've diagnosed the patient with septic shock doesn't mean we've reached hashtag dispo. It is really important that we try to find the source of infection before calling our consultants and trying to move the patient to the floor. The patient with cholangitis isn't going to do well on a medicine floor. Yeah, I can see why they might be frowned upon. So let's say I have a different patient. This patient has quadriplegia with a history of pneumonia and frequent UTIs, and he comes in complaining of abdominal pain. He's also febrile and tachycardic, but his shock index is less than one, and he responds well to his initial bolus of IV fluids. Does that sound like a regional patient to try and pin down a source of infection before jumping to broad-spectrum antibiotics? Now you're getting it. You want to make sure you stay on top of that patient and still get the antibiotics in within a reasonable amount of time. For this patient, you should be able to get a couple of really important things done pretty quickly, like a UA, chest x-ray, and thorough skin exam to help you guide your choice of antibiotics. Now, let's move on to the choice of antibiotics. We'll start with broad spectrum. What do you two usually turn to for a patient with undifferentiated septic shock? As a general principle, for patients in septic shock, you're going to want to use two different antibiotics from different classes that will provide you with broad coverage of both gram-negative and gram-positives. Zosin or piperacillin tazobactam provides broad coverage against both and includes pseudomonas coverage. So I think that's a good place to start. When it comes to choosing your second agent, you're going to want to take some patient characteristics into account. In a patient that's coming from the community without risk factors for resistant organisms, ceftriaxone provides a great gram-negative coverage. Vancomycin will provide MRSA coverage to those who are at risk, and meropenem should be administered for those who have a history of ESBL. If you suspect an intra-abdominal source, and for some reason your patient can't tolerate zosin, covering with cefepime and flagyl or meropenem and flagyl should get you adequate gram-negative, gram-positive, and anaerobic coverage. If you're suspecting a soft tissue infection, make sure you add clindamycin for toxin suppression. Great points. I've been looking over antibiotic administration guidelines recently and have noticed that cefazolin, aka ANCEF, provides coverage for a lot of infections including MSSA, group A strep, group B strep, making it a good agent to add for IV line infections, endocarditis, and soft tissue infections where MRSA is not suspected. Good point. If you want to use more narrow-spectrum antibiotics in patients who are not in shock and have an identified source... Using your local antibiogram is probably the best place to start, and again, make sure you check the previous culture results. I think we've gone over some pretty important information today. To review, first, choosing antibiotics and sepsis starts with a thorough history and physical exam. Second, if a patient is in shock, it's reasonable to start with broad-spectrum antibiotics, and you're going to want to get them in as quickly as possible. But if your patient is stable, it's reasonable to take some time to identify the source then use patient data and your local antibiogram to choose the most narrow-spectrum antibiotics. Finally, if a surgical source is identified, make sure you get your surgery colleagues involved early, preferably before you've admitted the patient to the medicine floor. I've definitely learned a lot today, and I'm excited to get back in the department and apply all this new knowledge. Keep listening all this month as we continue to explore the management of sepsis and septic shock. Still to come, we have an episode to help guide your resuscitation of septic patients in the emergency department and an overview of sepsis in pediatric patients. Until next time, this has been the EM Guidewire crew at the Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out!
septic nuggets scare the ketchup out of me? The honest answer is, I can't, so... (laughs) (laughs) The honest answer is, I can't talk. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Hashtag mom brain. (laughs) Oh, so it's mush. Okay. Yay. (laughs) 